Don't know if you're going to be excited about this or not. I am. We are headed back into Genesis. Now, I know when I say that in the next service, I'm going to at least get one person who cheers because my wife will be here, right? Um, so I'm counting on that, and it was okay. I was expecting this kind of thing, and I could see why some people might go, oh my word, Genesis again, what's wrong with you? Um, for 18 months now, we have been going in and out of Genesis. We've been doing it because um, Genesis is packed densely with truths that are really important. There's a lot of foundational stuff going on in Genesis. God is introducing himself to a people, and he's trying to help them understand who he's like, what he's like, what he does, what he does. And so uh, we've been processing it in a series, and we kind of leave it for a while and let it digest, and then we go back and forth. We're going, we're going back to that again today, and we're going to kind of pick up where we left off. I don't, I don't know if you um, remember where we left off or not, uh, but I'm going to bring you up to speed really quick because I think this stuff is really important and the, uh, and the content that we're going to wrestle with today, I think if, if you're open to it, could change the way you live now. Uh, we left off meeting a guy named Abram, and he was the first guy in the story that was a little bit different than everybody else. Everybody else seemed to be really concerned about making a name for themselves, about, about gathering land, gathering property, gathering people, and being something and they were more concerned with that. But this guy, Abram, knowingly married a woman who couldn't have a child, made that choice because it was the right thing to do, and in so doing, set himself up for some difficulty. Because as soon as he did that, he understood that his line would come to an end. There would be no heir that carried his name. And so this selfless act of grace to his family member was recorded in the scriptures. And it was an act of, of boldness. And God said, I can work with a guy like this. And that's kind of where we left off the story. Um, the story is going to unfold with Abram learning what it means to trust God. See, up to this point, he's going to do some pretty bold things that reveal his trust of God. He's going to leave his family. You didn't do that. He's going to leave and follow God into the wilderness. Unheard of. Yet he does it. The problem is, Abram's not a perfect guy. And it's going to lead him to make some choices and decisions about trust that are going to be very, very messy. And the problem is going to be, is he going to recover from that, or will it destroy how he relates to this God? And, and that's what we're going to find out. And I want to tell you, I'm excited about this, because this idea of trust, at least in my life, I have found that it's really quite easy when life is good like if you're just expecting a few challenges, a few bumps in the road, trusting God, you know, talking about it, saying it, doing it, not hard to do at all. But as soon as your life has some tension, shall we say, tension between two values that you hold that seem to be competing with each other and you don't know how it's going to work out, 
tension with a path that you think might be closed to you when you didn't want it closed to you, or one that opened to you that you don't quite understand and you can't clearly see down that path and you wonder, should I do this or not? That kind of trust is hard. The kind of trust where God comes to you and says, I want you to do something different with your job. I'm going to change the landscape. And for so many of us, our value and worth are tied up in our jobs. And when God touches that, we wonder if he really knows what he's doing or not. Can I trust you with that part of my life? Or he comes to you and says, hey, I want, I want to see this thing change in your relationship. How you connect, how you engage with people. And your thought is, I'm a little closer to the situation, God. Why are you messing with this? I've got it under control, and I can control it. It's even more, it's even more so when it's your kids, and God asks you to, I'm going to ask you to trust me with your kids, that the story that I'm going to write with them, the people that I'm going to bring in their lives that changes their story is something that's outside of your control. Can you be patient and trust me? See, that kind of trust that kind of trust is hard. And you, you know what makes it even more frustrating? That kind of trust is hard. And at the same time, we wrestle with whether we're going to do that with God or not. We look around and see people who don't seem to have any trust whatsoever for God, and they seem to be doing better than we are. Seem to have more money. They seem happier. More successful. Their family. Look at their family. And I'm over here trying to figure out if I'm going to live with the values that God wants for me or not in the face of this tension. And I don't know what to do. We're going to see that in the story of Abram today. He's going to run into a situation where he makes a colossal mistake. I cannot tell you how big it is. In fact, I'm going to paint the details for it, and you're going to go, what was he thinking? And then something else is going to unfold. Because I'm going to take you to two chapters. This is Genesis chapters 12 and 13. And you're going to be tempted to think that these are two stories that are unrelated to each other that just happen to be next to each other in the text. And what I'm hoping is that by the end of the day, you'll understand that these two chapters are not unrelated they're um, utterly connected, and they're going to help us understand what it means to fail in the face of trusting God and what can be done about it. Okay, so we're going to start. We're going to start in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, reveals that there's a severe famine in the land and that Abram decides he's going to go down to Egypt, which is a wise call. Um, Egypt had the Nile River that would flood almost every year. It was very consistent. It would drop silt on the land, and it was very fertile. You could grow all kinds of stuff on this land. And so when he's in a severe drought situation, he's just going to go to where he knows there's food. It was a smart choice, right? It, maybe, maybe he wasn't trusting God to provide for him either. But we do know this, he had a definite trust problem with God, and it starts to get revealed in the plan that he makes on his way into Egypt. And it starts um, with verse 11. He says, 
As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, here's the thing. Either he's flirting with her, which is cool, he's married. Um, He's buttering her up, or she really is gorgeous. By the way, she's in her 60s. So, um, so if she is, like, good for her, right? But what we're going to find out is that he, he's doing this. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife? Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Abram is being manipulative. He is creating a scenario where he wants to do something that's wrong, but he's giving her a righteous reason for doing it. I could be killed if you don't do this. What's he asking her to do? By the way, he is manufacturing a dilemma. We're going to find out that what he's afraid of, being killed so that somebody can marry his wife, is a bunch of baloney. We're going to find that out later in the text. He's manufacturing a dilemma, a tension in the story. And he's putting Sarah in the hot seat. You're going to have to choose to do this or I'm going to die. So what does he ask her to do? Verse 13. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and that my life will be spared because of you. And he reveals his two motives. The one he's using for manipulation My life will be spared. You're put in a hard place, Sarai. You're going to decide whether we're going to tell the truth or I'm going to die. What's it going to be? But here's the thing. He reveals what he's really all about with the other motive. Do you see what it says there? That I will be treated well for your sake. What's going on here? (sighs) Abram is planning to tell people that this is his sister, which means she's on the market for marriage. And if you would like to come and court her, you're going to have to bring some stuff to me that's going to um, put you at the front of the line for actually ending up with this great prize. And he's going he's to use her to get all kinds of stuff so that he can become wealthy. His plan is to just mess with everybody and manipulate them and take money from them, but not actually marry her off. That's what his plan is. By the way, does it sound like anything else in the future story? Think about this for a second. Abram has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob goes to his father's household to get a bride. And what happens to him? Gets messed with. Works for seven years to marry a woman and is given a different woman Works seven more years to marry the woman he wanted to marry in the first place. It looks like his family is hucksters when it comes to this whole marriage thing. Like, it's it's a family business. Let's mess with people. And and Abram's going down to Egypt going, I'm going to get rich. I'm going to use her to do this. Listen, let's say you're flying into Vegas, right? Boyfriend with your boyfriend, husband, it doesn't matter, the relational, like, doesn't matter. Like, you land on the tarmac, and he leans over, and he says to you, hey, I think you're very beautiful. Um, I'd like you to tell everybody in this town that you're my sister, because I think you can work people for some drinks 
maybe some events, maybe we can get some tickets to go to some shows. You can say, oh, can you get one for my brother too? And we can just work the town and take people for a ride. If the person you were traveling with said that to you, what would you say? Oh, who are we kidding? How much blood would be spilled? That's the question, right? There's no way you would sit by and go, this is a good idea. So why did Sarai? Two reasons. He said, I could be killed if you don't do this. And she had to have a sense of gratefulness because she would have been stuck in abject poverty if he hadn't done what he'd done by marrying her. So he ha- she has a sense of gratefulness for this whole thing. And so she goes along with this. She goes along with this thing, and they decide to dangle her as a prize. And we're going to dangle you as a prize, and we're going to attract a bunch of people, and we're going to make some money, honey. And this is going to work out really good. One problem. Verse 15. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. Okay, this makes me conclude she was beautiful, right? Because Pharaoh guys look at her and say, Pharaoh, this one should be in your harem. I know she's 65, but wow, you got to sign her up. And here's the problem. They were planning to dangle her, manipulate people, use people, and he ran into the one gate with Pharaoh takes, negotiates afterwards. And he takes her into his harem. Is this the moment where you would realize that maybe your plan was flawed? That you had messed up? That it's time to reveal to the world that you've been lying? Hey, that's, that's my wife. We're running a con don't do this. Is that what happens here? No. He lets this play out. He lets this play out for the reason that's stated in verse 16. He, Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake. The plan works. He's getting gold, he's getting silver, he's getting animals. Like, he's getting rich. What's she getting? Abandoned, betrayed, trapped. Look, if if she wondered, if I say anything before and it will get him killed, wouldn't that be even more so now? I'm talking to the one guy who could kill somebody and not have any consequences for it. I cannot reveal to Pharaoh that I am married. So she's trapped. This is a mess now. This is a tragic mess. All because Abram created this dilemma and got greedy. By the way, do you understand where his level of trust kind of went out the window with God? If God said, I'm going to make you a great nation, can he do that if you're dead? If he said, I'm going to make you a great nation, do you trust him to be the one who brings you your wealth? Or do you go out and manipulate and use other people to do it? 
He was acting on his own values, not God's. He had no level of trust. And God comes to their rescue. The scripture says that everybody in the palace started getting sick. And the wise men kind of figured out that it had to be this Sarai woman. And as they tracked down the information, they concluded she's married. Pharaoh comes to Abram and says, Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. If anybody should have been killed right then, it's Abram. His fear was manufactured. It was unreal. And what he gets instead with all of his ill-gotten gains, and it looks... It looks like he's one of those guys who gets away with not trusting God and everything works out for him. He's got his girl, he's got the livestock, he's got money, he's got all kinds of um, workers to help him. Like, he's loaded. It works, right? No big deal. No harm, no foul. He lied his way without trusting God. No issue. And that's what you would conclude if you stopped reading the story there. But a second story begins in chapter 13. And almost immediately, they are connecting the problem that they're having with what just took place. This is 13, verse 2. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. In fact, we find in verse 5 that his nephew, who was traveling along with him as well, was in on the scam and he was wealthy too. And both of these guys are now brimming with wealth because of the, the scam that they had pulled in Egypt. And it led them to a second problem. This one's big too. This, this uh, is what is said in verse 6 of Genesis 13. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great they could not stay together. Look, they, they had so much stuff that they were starting to get into a conflict about the land that they lived on. And now Abram's facing a very serious problem. Why do you think... By the way, most rabbis have reasoned through this, and I think their logic makes sense, and I actually think the scriptures later on um, would agree with this. Why do you think Lot is even with Abram in the first place? He's a nephew. He should have stayed in his father's household. Why did he travel with Abram? I think Abram concluded that this was the way that God was going to keep his promise to me. If Lot had a son under his household, Abram could count that person as an heir of his and his thing and keep his promise to him. And now he's facing a situation where he's about to lose that person because they're standing there arguing about what in the world they can do to be together. And they've concluded we have so much stuff we can't be together. If we keep having this conflict, it's going to come to blows. You have to go. You're the only person 
that I could have an heir from. You have to stay. You have to go. You have to stay. You have to. Dilemma. We have another dilemma. And this was created by his own greed. And now he's in a situation where he's going to have to decide, what am I going to do this time? Am I going to choose to trust that God will keep his promise to me, or am I going to manipulate? Am I going to control? Am I going to keep my hand on this and keep Lot as close to me as possible because I cannot imagine God accomplishing his promise with me any other way? I I want you to know, um, these two sections of Scripture, I'm convinced they're linked. I just want to help you understand that there's a few things that are linked in the text so that you know I'm not just making it up. I'm going to go through them really fast. Okay, there's some phrases, there's some ideas, and there's one big idea that links all of these together. So I'm just going to run through these real quick. In Genesis 12, 6, and Genesis 13, 7, there is a phrase that's used in both sections of Scripture that's completely worthless. It's filler. There's no explanation for why it's there. It has no bearing on any thing that happens in either story, and rabbis would look at you and say, listen, there, these are uh, useless verses except that God didn't waste anything. So when he did this, it's a hint to us that these two sections of scripture are connected. The other place where there's a phrase is Genesis 12, 13 and Genesis 3, 8. When he says, say you are my sister, it's the same word he uses when he meets his um, nephew in a field and says, we, two brothers meet. The NIV translates it close relative because it's not his brother. Well, she's not, her, not the sister either, right? It's a word that you use where you would shade and color things. And it's being used in both texts at this point. Again, another hint that something is going on that connects them to. And the other, the other one is that in both about God's promise being kept. How are you going to keep your promise if I'm dead? How can you build me into a great nation if I don't count on me? And in this case, the second story, how can I count on you to make a great nation if you're going to let the one way for me to have an heir walk out of my life? They're connected. And up to this point in the story, he has a mixed bag of experience when it comes to trust. Set out from his family, incredible amount of trust. For money, complete lack of trust. And now he finds himself in another moment again with a brother in a field. You know how important this moment is? Can you recall... We talked about this story. Can you recall two other brothers who stood in a field in Genesis? One killed another. That's the kind of tension we've got here. Got these two brothers in a field. And it says this in verse 11. The two parted company. He learned. He learned. 
And if you don't think this is a, a big thing, let him walk out of his life. He no longer has any way uh, that he can imagine. By the way, he never even conceives how God actually fulfills that promise to him. Never use his wife for that. Never. But it's not just that. In part of the departing that they make, there is a, there is a debate over who's going to get what pasture land. And I want to take... I want to show you two pictures from Israel so that you get the contrast of what's happening here. Okay, this is a valley. So there, this, you can see mountains all the way in the background. And I'm standing on a mountain. And all of this water rushes off these mountains into these valleys. And they are lush. They're, they grow pretty well. But on the hills where Abram was living, this is actually really green for that time of year. That's getting it done. And Lot says, I'm going to choose this, and Abram, you can have that. If you were trying to build wealth, which one of these do you think would get it done? And he says, it's okay. You can take the great stuff. I'll take this over here. Because after that big mistake that I made, I've decided that I'm going to trust God no matter what. And this is what's revealed in verses 14 and 15. You are to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. All of the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. In essence, Abram, this is the kind of decision I want from you. I want my values. I want with the story I'm asking you to write with your life. And I ask you to trust me with that. And having made, I want you to just know everything is on course. I'm going to still bless you. I'm going to still give you a whole bunch of land. By the way, I think you could maybe argue that chapter 14 is a continuation of some of this too because Lot goes and lives in that lush land. He moves into a town there. That town gets captured and Lot and all the people and all the wealth in it get drug away. And Abram pursues those kings who did And at the time in history that this took place, the rules were simple. To the victor goes the spoils. He was allowed to keep all the people, all the possessions in that battle. He doesn't do that. He donates 10% to get it anyway. And then when he was offered the rest of the stuff in chapter 14, verse 23, he says, I don't want any, nothing, nothing from a sandal. I don't want anything from you because God's going to be the one who provides my wealth. You're never going to say that you made me rich. I, I would tell you, that what you're watching in the scripture is somebody who failed epically. And that could be part of our story too because we're not perfect. And over and over, we find ourselves in dilemmas where we, we have some tension that we run into, where our values are being challenged. And God's given you great stuff 
that he thinks that you can accomplish in this world. And sometimes our fear of that situation causes us to fail. We do it our way. We make a mess. We make choices that are horrible. And sometimes what I've learned is that we don't learn. Like we have that failure, and one of the reasons, the back of our minds and condemns us. And so we're afraid of it, and so we push it out of our mind. We don't want to think about it, we don't want to visit it, place that's full of shame for us, and we ignore it. Instead of saying, look, I failed, this is big, what could I actually Abram did that. He broke trust with God. He broke trust with his wife. He had the consequences that followed him because he was so greedy. Now he was going to have to break relationship with Lot. And he realizes, I can't keep doing what I'm doing. Learned his lesson. Uh, another reason that we don't learn lessons from our failures is sometimes I think when we look at that, our, the only thing that we're trying to do is just not make that same mistake in mistake in that same situation again. But did you notice that the two situations that Abraham faced ahead of his story were nothing like what he faced before? He actually found a core problem that was going on between him and God. That, that's why when we have these failures that are so hard for us, and you don't want to revisit it, you don't want to look at it, you don't want to think about it, what you ought to consider doing is just simply saying, what did this say about me and God? What, what did I learn about I learned about God in this? And if you could walk away from that in a situation that is not similar at all, doesn't have the same hallmark kind of features at all, you'll be able to make a decision on a core idea like trust. Because you realized that was the problem of my failure back here. I'm not going to let that repeat again. See, here's the thing. Your life, my life, we're going to run into dilemmas over and over. Trust was built for dilemmas. It, it's, the whole, it's the whole purpose that in the face of these, these tensions that we have in our lives, these difficult moments where we want to control or not, we can remember back when we made a decision that ignored God's leading and it created a mess. And we can use that for our benefit right now. It doesn't have to cripple us. It doesn't see that that moment changed the rest of Abram's story because he was willing to learn. You're going to fail. And the only question is, are you willing to have a conversation with God about what you've learned about that failure that will change? Are you willing to trust a God who will do things in ways that you cannot imagine or think to write the story in your life that he wants to write? Do you have a dilemma right now? One that you feel like you failed at and it haunts you? Maybe it's time to revisit it through the lens of how you related to God so that that story 
can become something that shapes you for the good in the future. God, I talk with people on a pretty frequent basis facing a dilemma. Rock between, caught between a rock and a hard place. We describe it in a lot of different ways. God, your trust, trusting you was made for moments like that. Where we look at the values that you've asked us to live with, situation that's in front of us, and we decide we're not going to control this, we're going to let God do it. God, it's really easy to say until you're facing what you feel could be life or death, success or failure. And yet, God, what we have in our, in our histories, we have places where we've really failed. And we could go back and examine those. And they could actually become the basis for us making better decisions moving forward. So I ask that you would give us the courage What's so beautiful about this story is his failure did not end the relationship with you. Because he adjusted, the relationship got stronger. Things that we're ashamed about, things that we don't want to talk about, those can be used by you if we would just learn. God, give us the courage to step in and learn. Rewrite our stories of trust with you as we move through life. In Jesus' name, amen.